All right, folks, back with uh, Mike Gordon, uh, founder of the famous Chilkoot Charlie, second podcast with Mike. How you doing, Mike? Great, thanks. Your first one, a um, lot of traction. A lot of folks listen to that. Very uh, popular podcast we did. I got a lot of feedback on did it. Did you? Good. Yeah. Uh, so if the folks don't know, you recently wrote a book, Learning the Ropes, that talks about your life, coots, your personal intimate details of your life, your drug addiction, climbing all the seven peaks of the seven summits, seven continents, um, and then all, a bunch of other stuff in there all about you and really Anchorage um, in the 70s and 80s and your time on the assembly, which was, I re- just read that chapter about how there was the borough assembly and the regular assembly. Well, city council. And they kind of, you got elected to one term the first year to fill a term and they, they put you on the borough thing and you were like, fuck, this sucks. <laughs> Well, it was it was actually kind of a dubious honor. Uh, I was on it that first year, and then I got appointed to it the next two years too, because I got reelected to a three year seat. So, so you had said that there was, and I want to get you to clarify this because I'm trying to understand it. There was some fight about A Street and C Street and yeah, the Teamsters, the AC couplet. And so, what was that about? And then you said the Teamsters and George Sullivan were trying to lean on you right oh yeah they did lean on me oh my god <laughs> what did you say you said but he was even though george would fight with you at the end of the day when it was over he was didn't hold grudges right he didn't no he was a good guy george i, le- I learned a lot from george he was a master politician uh, but he he had you know the best interest of the city at heart and he and i just saw things a little differently at that time george sent jim campbell to talk to me um, and suggested I was either with them or against them. What was the issue with this couplet? Well, it, people who wanted the couplet wanted it because it created jobs, um, and it was part of their idea of the growth of the city. People who didn't want it claimed that it would divide the city in half and was environmentally problematic in that regard. What the bottom line was, was that Dave Rose and myself and Wilda Hudson and some other people on the assembly were having a quarrel with George at the time, who was referred to as King George, because uh, <laughs> George was a full-time mayor operating in a, in, a, in a city that had a city manager form of government. Um, and he was pretty forceful guy and I just I didn't like being pushed around and so I teamed up with these other guys you'd think that George would have counted better I mean he was pretty good at that uh-huh. um, but he he had the minority votes um, and so when it came to you know push or pull why he lost the vote what happened is that we got so angry with him that we um, voted him into a part-time mayorship yeah, and then he and then he went to the back to the voters. On he, that, right? he did. He took it to the voters of the city, and and being the, the popular guy that he was, he won. So then we had, you know, a, an institutionalized full time mayor in a city manager run city. The other funny thing you wrote in that chapter was, uh, I forget who it was with, but you were in an executive session trying to pick 
maybe a city manager. Was that it? And it, it was Doug Wyford. And he goes, "This guy's part of Mensa." What's, said, what's, he said, "What's what's Mensa?" And Ben Marsh said, "Oh, it's an organization of geniuses." And George said, "Oh hell, no wonder I didn't know what it was." <laughs> Um, so the other interesting thing about your time in the assembly was you talked about that was at a time when they were kind of carving up Anchorage as far as, you know, land use for uh, business and for residential. And it really, at that point, didn't seem too defined, right? It was no, kind of no, up- it wasn't very defined. There was, there was no zoning out in the borough. And so we zoned the entire bowl area, which was the hardest job I ever did. You said you had people coming in, you know, late meetings and they were mad about losing property or well, every, every night, every night, people would come in and and state their case before the assembly. the The uh, planning and zoning board um, came up with this pretty map with different colors on it, designating um, strip business and downtown business and industrial and park areas and um, multifamily and single family and all that and. And uh, the people that owned the property that uh, was in those different colored zones weren't necessarily planning on uh, developing them according to that map or hadn't already or had already developed them differently than what the map called for. And so they were looking at, uh, you know, if, if, if they didn't meet those requirements of the new map, um, they were not going to be able to develop the property the way they planned, or they were going to end up um, being a non-conforming use. So didn't you say there was some uh, sa- savvy, kind of savvy developers? That, there was one guy you said that was really fair. What was his name? Well, I, I wouldn't s- say that he was fair. He was, very, he was, he was good. He, his name was Joe Cange. Cange, yeah. Was yeah. that the Cange Street there? Yeah. Is mm-hmm. that what that's about? Yeah, he was a big developer. He was raised here. He's a very smart young guy who had strategically uh, placed properties all over town, and he would usually come out to the assembly looking for um, an upgrade in the zoning or some other kind of variance, and he'd just come out with his plans under his arm and be very low-key the way he represented himself to us, no lawyers. He usually got what he wanted, but of course he never asked for anything unreasonable either. Uh So the other chapter, there's a couple things I want to discuss the... I want to do Gordo's, and then this fucking wild trip to Belize, which is, I couldn't even <laughs> believe this. I'm reading this like it's a fiction. So first, I want to talk about Gordo's. So you, some, some, your buddy had had a liquor license that he wasn't using, and if I'm correct, he was worried they were getting divorced and the wife was going to get it or go after it. Yeah. So he essentially gave it to you, right? Yeah, um, on the word of his brother, who um, I had bought Choku Charlie's from. So he actually, what he did is he gave me fifty-one percent of the license, so that I had control of it. And and there was a thing about you have to operate in any given calendar year at least thirty days, correct, to keep the license. Otherwise, you forfeit the license, right? Right. So you back, had back in those days they they didn't uh, they didn't give extensions like they do today. They give extensions on a regular basis today. I'll I'll buy it for a price. Each time you get the extension, it costs you a little more. Um, because they don't want you warehousing a license for obvious, mm-hmm. obvious reasons. Well, because there's only a, so, so many of them out there. Right. So you you got, what, six months to make this thing happen. Yeah, if that. Mm-hmm. And the funny part in the book was you said that you were almost there and it was like coming down to the wire. And 
some inspector said the tiles in the bathroom weren't high enough or some bullshit? It, it was the the afternoon of the last day to get my permit. Um, and it was a health inspector who was the problem. He didn't, my, my architect had designed, it was a beautiful place. The architect had designed the tile up to a, a level that the inspector deemed was too low. Where, where was it at? This was at 15th and Gamble. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right, okay. On the east side of the street. And so I had to go in that afternoon, my architect and myself went in there and tore the bullnose row off of the top, all this beautiful blue tile in the bathrooms, um, and had to replace it with several more rows of disgusting white tile <laughs> that you know to bring it up to the level that the guy wanted so that I could get open. And it pissed me off so much, I decided I was going to run for the city Yeah, you council. said you got sick of bureaucrats after that, right? Yeah. So this thing wasn't going hot. You were trying to figure it out, and you ran into a guy from, I think, high school, right? And yeah. Long story short, you decided, let's make this a gay bar. Well, it didn't happen quite that quickly. Um, I ran the place for a while. It was Alaska's first disco, and I patterned it after a place that I... Had. Did you have the, the light lit up floors or no? <laughs> no. No, but I, I designed it after a, a bar that I'd been to in San Francisco when I was going to college there. It was called the library. And it was <coughs> it was designed to look sort of like a library, and it had telephones on all the tables so people could call between tables to, uh, you know, guys and gals could, <laughs> could uh, see could. Yeah, you said there's a big switchboard, right? An arrangement that way. That's awesome. And so I, I put uh, Continental telephones on all the tables and had a switchboard as well as a DJ booth. And then we had uh, original Alaskan modern art from people like Joan Kimura and others around town on the wall. So it was a very beautiful, tastefully done bar. But it was a, it was a tough location. It was on the left-hand side of a one-way street with four parking spaces in front and um, I was young and confident and and I was also flattered that I'd been given the opportunity to do this and so what I, year was this um, it was 1971 perhaps okay so early, right, early right in there yeah and so things weren't you're were trying to make it work and things well it didn't it, it wasn't successful uh, in the long run and so uh, um, Dennis Powell, guy that used to own the Embers, which was a strip club on East Fifth Avenue, I'd gone to high school with him. He came by one afternoon and uh, just to have a drink, and he was saying, uh, you should turn this into a gay bar. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never been in a gay bar, and I didn't know how many gays there were in town. Didn't know whether there were enough to support the place. He said, uh, "You got it's perfect." He said, "You got modern art on the walls, parking in the rear, <laughs> <laughs> phones on the tables." <laughs> so, you know, I got to thinking about it, and I thought, "Well, it's not a bad idea." And I was desperate to try anything at that point. There was one other gay bar in town, right? And there was. It was called the Bonfire. It was this little place next to the Embers on Fifth Avenue, and it was owned by. A guy named Ed Fletcher that I came to learn was one of the few really evil people I ever met in my life. Anyway, um, I went down to the bonfire, and there was a guy in there that I knew from high school uh, named Toby. And he was well-known in the gay community, and 
I spent a while talking to him and told him I was thinking about turning it into a gay bar. And he was really excited about the idea. They had already been in previously and taken over the dance floor. And my manager flipped out and turned the lights out on him and closed the bar. Oh, my God. So it was obvious <laughs> that they wanted to come in the bar. So uh, we made an arrangement for a, a particular night and a date where we were going to change it over. And uh, there was a lawyer I knew at the time who came in regularly. And uh, he would he came in after playing handball in, in the early evenings, and he would order his Schlitz, and I'd give him his Schlitz, and he'd give me the money, and I'd turn around and ring it up on the register, and when I turned back around again, he'd say, I'll have another one. And he'd do this three times, drink three Schlitzes like that. And so this one particular night, he comes in, and he's having his Schlitz, <laughs> and he's looking out at the dance floor, and he says, hey, Mike, you're guys out there dancing together i said yeah yeah i didn't have a chance to tell you that i decided to turn it into a gay joint <laughs> he bounded off that stool he was he was out of there and lost like a, a moose <laughs> and they, uh, he's gone yeah, yeah like, so, so, a, so, like a moose in an alder patch he disappeared some of the guys you some of the, the guys and were coming to the the bar what were some of the names of these some of these gay guys they were i forget there was in the book i was laughing so hard Oh, Auntie Wayne was my manager. Auntie, Auntie Wayne, yeah, yeah, Wayne. They called him Auntie Wayne. Yeah, <laughs> said he was a real, real queen. <laughs> he was. He was a huge guy. He probably weighed three hundred and fifty pounds. Drank a case of Schlitz a day. Auntie Wayne. <laughs> yeah, wore white socks and and uh, short <laughs> skirts, and um, he was a big draw in the community. He's he's a good guy, good manager. So so it's it's. It's bo- it's booming as a gay bar, right? It did well. Yeah, it was doing well. I it it had been uh, we'd been operating. My wife and I had been operating it for about a year as a gay bar, and the handwriting was on the wall. Uh, all of the gay community planned events were were scheduled for Gordos. And 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 one of the things was I'm reading the book, and one, was it one of the regulars or um, you mentioned somebody? It was Myrna. Oh yeah, Myrna. Myrna was my waitress. Yeah, and I said... And Myrna ended up being the owner of Mad yeah, Myrna's I, I, As downtown. soon as I saw the name, I said, oh my God, that's Mad Myrna's. Yeah, yeah, his name's actually Jeff Woods. But uh, anyway, the, the handwriting was on the wall, and, and Ed Fletcher could read. This is the owner of the competitor. Yeah, of the bonfire. So he hired a couple of kids to burn well, the place well, you, down. Well, you, you said you were in Miami. I was. And you got a call, right, from, from the, the Coots partner. Yeah, my wife uh, at the time, Tiffany, and I were in Miami Beach, and we'd been out that night going to gay clubs to see if we could come up with some ideas for our clientele. And I got back to the hotel room, and Bill Jacobs called me up, and and he said, are you sitting down? I said, no, I'm laying down. And he said, well, good. Gordo's burned down. So you said that fucker Ed had his boys torch it. He did, yeah. And not just your building, it's the neighbor got torched too, right? Yeah, yeah, it spread. It, it, the lady next door that had a beauty parlor was burned out, and there was damage done to okay plumbing and heating. And we didn't have enough insurance to cover all the bills that we had out there, and I ended up having to sell Red's last license, which was very upsetting to me in order to pay off all the bills. All of the artwork that was ruined in the place was added up to quite a bit of money. And I had to pay for all that out of my pocket. 
Wow, so you said this, they actually figured out this guy, Ed, set this up, and he got charged, right? He did. Yeah, um, this guy, Chief, well, there was a young investigator by the name of Fullenweider at the time, who later became chief, who was in charge of the investigation, and he actually flew down to California to interview these two young men who had thrown some gasoline in the back door. They almost did themselves in when they did because they threw a match to it and there was a pretty big explosion, I guess. Jesus. Um, anyway, they turned state's evidence and Ed went to prison for, I don't know, a year or two. It wasn't long enough as so far, what, what, what far happened? as I was concerned. He was going in or getting out when he got somebody stabbed him, right? He was back out and, um, and in town and, um, or no, no, I've got that wrong. That was before he went to prison. So, I, mean, I think it was a guy forgets. Old, guy forgets some of this. I stuff. think he said an old employee had like stabbed him in yeah, the chest a couple was a, times. Yeah, right? he had a chef by the name of Cooksey that came out of the kitchen one night at the bonfire and said, "Hey Ed, I need to talk to you." And Ed went over to him and he pulled out a big butcher knife and stabbed him three times in the abdomen. Lived Gee, through it. Jesus. Yeah. So he gets out, and you said you got a job at some restaurant. You called him and said you're. You're employing an arsonist. Yeah, I did. And, and they, they said, said, we don't give a fuck. We, <laughs> we, essentially. We need a cook. Yeah, they said, we need a cook. And I said, well, you're not going to get any of my business. Uh, he stayed around town for a while longer, and then he f- ended up down and uh, on the spit running a place called the Beluga Bar on the spit in Homer. Uh-huh. And he lived in Anchor Point. And what Cooksey couldn't do with a butcher knife, he ended up doing it himself. He uh, went home one night and... Um, went to bed smoking a cigarette, went to sleep and burned himself up on a fire. Damn. So you had this other deal in Fairbanks, that bar that was uh, not going great. You said you didn't read the read the writing on the wall, but somebody fucking torched that one too. Yeah, what, my competition burned me down in Fairbanks also. Fuck, how many people <laughs> tor- tor- <coughs> Torched your your business your businesses. You must well, have been doing good. You must have been pissing them off, taking all their clients. I guess. I don't think it was even investigated up in Fairbanks. You know, they. <laughs> sorry, sorry, they, Mike. They they don't like Anchorage people coming up there taking their money, um, competing against them. At least back then they didn't. Maybe they've changed their attitudes. But but when I was there during the pipeline era, they would rather have had somebody from texas taking their money than me so so eventually after all that you decided you had these different ideas you wanted to build a you know a a brand for other exported out of the out of the state but then you just said fuck it i'm going to focus on one location multiple bars coot so i can manage it and not have to worry about yeah getting burned down and all this other stuff well that's why that's that's what i did when i got back from belize i concentrated on downsizing and, and decided that I didn't mind having more than one bar as long as I could have them under the same roof and keep my eye on them. So that's the other thing. So there's this chapter about Belize, and I didn't understand it. I'm reading it. I'm you know a few pages in, and I go. Then I realized, I said, "Holy fuck!" So you you just decided. It sounds like middle of the night. Fuck it. You got all this money, and you and this guy, Tom Biss. You just put it all into a car. You drove to the border. You get to Canada. And you're just you're just basically decided to move your whole, leave everything in Alaska. You're out, and you're going. You're mo- you're moving to Belize. They speak English. It's a British protectorate. Blah blah. You look it all up. 
and you go down and you you just I didn't at first kind of understand. I thought maybe it was just on a midlife. I'm going to go out for a while, but you were actually planning to just uproot everything and just move to Belize and buy a business. And I wrote li- letters to the immigration department down there. I was serious. I was going down there to stay. Biss wasn't going to Belize with me. He was just along for the ride. Who's the guy that was, you bought the car and the trailer and yeah. this, this Howard, guy's... Howard Pompelli. This guy sounds like a real psycho. I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, the way was, you write about the, the drugs he, and the booze. He and was the, an ex-Vietnam vet who had a drinking problem. Um, he, I was planning on meeting up with him in, uh, in Tahoe, which I did. Uh, and that's where uh, Biss and I parted company for, for the time being. Um, Howard had a cabin in Tahoe, and he was to sell the cabin, buy a trailer. I was to buy a boat, and we were both going to drive down to to Belize, um, and we were going to go down the Baja Peninsula to do that and take the ferry over. Um, well, we, we made it to the end of the Baja, <laughs> but... Uh, well, I mean, it sounds like the trailer kept getting stuck, and then there was... He was drinking a lot, right? He was a big drinker. Yeah. Did, didn't you guys... You Howard's, said you, Howard's idea of responsible drinking was not spilling any. <laughs> so so you said you guys... Is this correct? You had a bunch of cocaine in your hat? Like a, well, an ounce a, of cocaine, and you not, crossed the border with it? Not a bunch. Tom, well, Tom had a gram of cocaine. Oh, okay. I, th- I was thinking it was a lot more than that. So. No, no, no. But but there definitely, you crossed the border with the Canadian-American border with coke. Yeah. I think you mentioned you're glad, glad we didn't get caught with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, was, that was a little risky. So, and you had a gun too. They just put it in a bag yeah. at the border. They didn't even take, they just said, oh, yeah. bag it up. <clears throat> so, it, so you're in Mexico and you're having this problem with this trailer and, you know, you eventually get, you get, you get down and then, what do you say? I'm, I'm not going or I'm not getting on the, the ferry? Well, I went, I drove all the way down to uh, La Paz. And out out to the ferry, checked it out, and I came back into the city, and uh, and I got a uh, a space in a trailer court, and Howard showed up, um, pulling the trailer, which you know he'd he'd messed up on the way down there. I had to pull him out of a ditch, and his turn signals didn't work, and um. He got to the trailer court, and he was about to take a left-hand turn to go into the trailer court, and he he didn't have any turn signals. He put his arm out of the truck, but there was a kid driving a Mustang behind him, and I guess he was in a hurry. And he came tearing around, you know, to the left to, to pass Howard while Howard was turning left, and he took out part of the trailer. looked like it had been in a hurricane and destroyed the left-hand side of the truck. Yeah, wow. <clears throat> So there I was, you know, in the trailer court with my boat, and Howard was dealing with the Federales and, and his accident, and he didn't show up for a couple of days. Um, <laughs> I don't know what he was doing, drinking with somebody probably. So I was sleeping under the boat, um, under well, actually under a cabana next to the boat, and... Um, these mongrel Mexican dogs would come by and sniff me all night long. <laughs> oh, shit. And uh, <laughs> he got me to thinking. And uh, I decided that I was going to go back to 
come back to Alaska and face the music. So why did you? This is a question I should ask before, but why did you? Why did you decide to uproot and leave everything and, and go to go to Belize? In oh, the first did, place. Yeah. Why did you want to leave Alaska? I know you had problems with the wife, the second pro- wife. Right? Yeah. The the wife was. That sounded fucking horrible. The wife was a big you're, problem. You're writing. I'm, I'm like. Reading this, I'm like, that lady sounds like a real bitch. I this, mean, Jesus this, Christ. This was the ex-go-go dancer that assured me the baby was mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you said there was like the one song you wrote, the... the uh, she's always a woman to yeah, me. Yeah, because she's, as much as of a bitch she was, you still loved her, right? I did, yeah. I didn't like her, but I loved her, you know, so I was really torn. But anyway, I needed to get away from her, and Bill Jacobs uh, was... The Co- Coots partner. yeah. He was, he built a triplex down in Bootlegger's Cove, and he was in big trouble um, financially, and he kept coming to me for money. Yeah, just wow. He said he kept, he said somebody advised him at one point to not build that fucking duplex. It's going to ruin you. Jack Hansmeyer, our banker, told him that, leaned over the table upstairs in, in the First National Bank building and said, you're going to have to sell a lot of things you don't want to have to sell if you build that building. No truer words were ever said. So he, you know, he kept pressuring me for money. So you got, you got, it didn't matter how much I gave him; it was never enough. You got sick. He was was going down, and I said, "I'm not giving any more money." So, so he threatened uh, dissolution of the corporation and this and that. So anyway, he was part of the problem also. And then you know, not long before I left, some guy froze to death in the parking lot in the middle of the night. Went to sleep in his car. And so, so this Jacobs guy kept just coming to you and saying, "I need fucking money. Yeah. My 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 fourplex or what threeplex is going under." Yeah, and he just kept dra- draining money out of the business. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. So after all this experience in Mexico, and y- you decided to come back, but you ended up coming back. You told the guy, "Fuck it, I'm leaving." You know, I don't owe you an explanation. I'm leaving. <laughs> I wrote him a note. I'm leaving. Fuck yeah, it. I wrote him a note, and I and I I sat down that morning and and made a list of things that I wanted to keep in my life and things that I wanted to jettison. Yeah, um, you, it was a good and, list in the book. It was like fifteen or twenty things, wasn't it? Yeah, close. And then I left a record or a note for Howard and said, "I'm heading back. I don't feel like I need to give you an explanation. You know where to find me if you want one." But then you came back, and then you eventually came back down to Belize, right? I did. Yeah, I I drove back up to to L.A. and knocked on my friend Pat Lonergan's door. <laughs> and uh, and I thought since I had so much invested in going down to Belize that I would at least go down there and visit it. Did, did you open like a bank account in Canada or something? Oh, I had a bank account. I had a Barclays account. Here, here's a question. You said you so you went to the house, you went to the coots, you, had, you got to Canada, you took all the money out in bags. You said it was a lot of money. You didn't say in the book how, I mean, how much money are we talking about? Can you say? I'm just because I'm curious. Like, we're talking about 50 grand or like 250 grand. It wasn't or, enough to live on for a lifetime. But it, but it was a substantial. I mean, it was enough to where you said it was on the bed and you were like, fuck, this is yeah, a lot it, of money. It looked like a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, so anyway, I went back down to Belize uh, just to check it out. And uh, had kind of a raucous time down there. It sounded cr- like, it sounded based on your description of the book a really fun place yeah good cool people foreign because it's yeah. british so you had you know the british influence and and that and from the other you know guatemala and all the stuff yeah, going on back I'd, then was i'd go out every night to the occidental hotel where all the british soldiers hung out it was basically a whorehouse 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, didn't, didn't you end up with some woman? And you, Imagine that. <laughs> didn't you end up with some woman? He said, I, I got to leave. I can't be here. I gotta, yeah. I got to get out of here. But they, yeah. they had treated you or something. <laughs> I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Under the light of the bare bulb, I realized my mistake. <laughs> so but you, you had um, actually made an offer on a business. I did, yeah. And, and, and the I, guy I, accepted it, right? It, I went out. To, I went out to the K's. I fell in love with the K's. Uh, spent a few days out there, and I found this lodge for sale. And it was owned by a doctor that lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I called him up and I made him an offer, and he accepted it. We we, we made a deal. It was so much down and so much a month and some balloon payments and. and so it was like a hundred and twenty grand or whatever. And then yeah, you know, and it, it was right on the beach you know the barrier reef was right there in front of it it had a, a sailboat and uh had water i mean it was a it was a perfect setup for for a little lodge or for just for a vacation home so uh, i was really pleased with having a deal on that and i got back to town and i hadn't heard anything from him. drove back up the alcan hadn't heard anything from him so i called him up and he said yeah he says my accountant said not to take anything but a cash deal so he reneged yeah, he backed out on the deal. And there wasn't anything I could do about it because I didn't have anything in writing. So so that was your... Uh... I had sent him, you know, the agreement as we discussed it mm-hmm. to sign and send back to me. And so never, that, that, that was never, your attempt? I never, I never got it back. That was your attempt at taking everything to Belize? Well, at that point, I decided to get a divorce and, and uh, take care of, you know, put turn my life around put it back on on an even keel um i wasn't planning on staying in Belize at that point but i loved it down there and i thought it'd be cool to have this place so other th- i mean there's i've never i once that happened i've i've never been back down there other thing we'll do i want to do more more podcasts with you i want to talk about everest and some of the australia because i spent a year in australia so mm-hmm. i got a special place in my heart i love australia but I want to talk a little bit about when you came back, Coots, during the pipeline boom, mm-hmm. and the the goons you basically had to hire to keep the peace because every night was a fight and you were fighting. And I think one of the best parts of the book was you'd go up to somebody and say you can't do that or you can't smoke here, and the response was "fuck you." Well, it wasn't you can't smoke here, but you can't take that drink outside, sir. Right? Yeah, and then it's "fuck, fuck you." you. <laughs> that was every night, basically. and the fight was on. Yeah, and so you had these these big bouncer guys, right? That were biker type people or which yeah. is ironic because you had a no biker and the yeah. club yeah rule right yeah so i mean it was just was it pipeline workers was it people coming up here for different i mean was it a combination of of these people and and um, a combination yeah the the pipeline workers and the hangers on you know and just people that were it's like somebody pried a rock loose in california and every ne'er-do-well down there crawled up the Alcan Highway and they were at my front door. So when they got here, they just kind of, where do we go, where do we go drink? Oh, go to Coots. Yeah. That's kind of how, how it went. Yeah. What about the guy we making, that was... We were making a lot of money, but... What about the guy was, that was the uh, the janitor? Oh, Foot. Bigfoot. Who, who uh, his thing was he would, because there was peanuts, right? You had peanuts everywhere? Yeah, they were, the f- they were a couple inches or more thick on the floor. And the place was really crowded. So if you drop something on the floor, it wasn't likely that you were going to be able to find it, whether it was a $100 bill or a gram of Coke or what. So this guy, would he would clean up in the morning, 
it's gone. He'd find, you said Coke, yeah. $100 bills, yeah. jewelry. Yeah, that was his domain. You know, if he if he'd go around at the end of the night, you know, and sift it all, and and he'd come up with his prizes, you know. But if he saw janitors or anybody else going around with a flashlight, looking at the floor, he, he their ass was his. And then you said at one point you were in the back and you you found a, there was a twenty two rifle, right? And the, and you said what the what the fuck is that? Yeah. Why is there a gun here? And <laughs> turns out it was it was his, right? It, it was, yeah. Uh, he and Buzz McPherson uh, were two guys that worked there on the night shift. And, well, you know, cleanup mm-hmm. and maintenance. And uh, they uh, they used to go on safaris, uh, meaning that between 5 when we closed and 10 or so when we opened, um, they would go hunting for mice with... Huh. Bird shot in the twenty-two because of the peanuts. Yeah, you, you, and you can shoot a, a mouse, you know, in front of a row of glasses with a with a twenty-two with bird shot, and it won't break the glasses. It spatter things around a little bit, you know. But I had a picture one time. I don't know what happened to it. I'd, I'd give anything for it. Buzz and Bigfoot standing at the bar with their back to the bar with the twenty-two rifle and about a half a dozen mice laying across the bar between them. Yeah. And you said they're in the whole... Ernest Hemingway, eat your heart. Yeah. <laughs> so you said they're in the whole Carter and the inflation, and there was something with the kind of funny in the book. You said that elect a peanut farmer to create a shortage of peanuts. Yeah, that's when Jimmy Carter became a president. And I had to stop putting peanuts on the floor because they got too expensive. So we uh, we bought a popcorn popper and got cedar chips down there. We've been doing that ever since. But it, dro- it drove the mice out, right? Well, they all headed back over the to the uh, to the bakery across the street. <laughs> <laughs> what a reunion that must have been! So, so I, I, by the way, I ran into Buzz McPherson's wife at Costco the other day when I was peddling, oh, peddling my books there. No shit, doing a, doing a book signing. Yeah. Would you give? Did you give her one? Hey. Oh, you should buy one. She, buy one. She, he already had one. I think. You know, funny. No, th- no, she bought one. That's right. F- funny thing was, I was on the airplane last night, flying back from L.A., and I'm, I got upgraded to first class. I was pretty excited about that. I'm sitting there in the front first row. I'm reading. I'm reading your book. I'm talking to my buddy. I'm with and this guy next to me. He goes, "I see you're reading Mike Gordon's book." I go, "Yeah, yeah." It's a fast. We're talking about the book and telling the stories and coots and all the you know the partying and the Anchorage and all the stuff and the climbing and some pictures. And I go, you know, Mike, he goes, Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Explorer club. His name is Josh. He found that shipwreck down there in Kodiak. Uh-huh. Uh, this, I think years ago, they found some shipwreck from 1928. It was, uh, one of the boats that the Carnegie's bought for shipping the, uh, ice. No, the mm. mineral, the, 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 from, from the, from the Kennecott mine. Oh, but it oh, went yeah. to, he found this thing, um, mm. with a t- team of folks and he knows you from the Explorer club. He lives down there near Helbicove, I think. But what was his last name? Josh, him and his wife. But yeah, you know, just fascinating. He was talking about. It. He go, oh yeah, my Gordon, fucking, a lot of stories. Um, but yeah, so when you say, you know, during the pipeline peak of the money and everything in, in, in Coots, I mean, can you tell me I mean, what was a good night? Like a good Friday night? I mean, how much would you? Twenty grand, fifty grand. I mean, what was a good night back then? <coughs> Boy, you know it's. Uh... It's hard to remember exactly what those nights were like. 
all cash too, right? I mean, there was card, well, credit cards. Most, mostly it was because we didn't have cash and ATM. Or I mean, we didn't take credit cards as much then, um, or or we didn't have ATMs either. So uh, yeah, it was mostly cash. Um, I I can remember what it was like in, you know, like two thousand six, two thousand seven, before the Great Recession. Uh-huh. You know, we used to do eight nine thousand dollars a night just on the door. Um, wow, just the entrance fees. Yeah. Fuck. And you know, wasn't unusual to have a hundred thousand dollar night. Um, God, that's wild. Yeah. How much over the years? How much do you think people have stolen from you? <laughs> a lot. I mean, how much do you think from the whole time pe- oh. leakage of, of stolen money, liquor, hundreds of thousands of dollars? It's <laughs> <laughs> all. I mean, it's ripe restaurant it's business, part, right? bar yeah, business. It's part ripe. of the price of doing business, you know, in that in that business. Well, Mike, um, I love doing these with you. I want to do some more. I know you're down there and. Halibacoa, but you get to Anchorage enough, right? You could come up here once a month. Yeah. We, we got to do another one because uh, we, last time I did this, I had a lot of folks listen to it and they said, "Man, this guy." Hopefully, sold some of your books because I, I know um, I've told everybody I've talked to if you're interested in Anchorage uh, history in a very fascinating way and a, and a character and coots and all that stuff. I said, get the book. So it's Learning the Ropes by Mike Gordon. You can get it online, right? Yes, you can get it at Amazon, you can get it at Barnes & Noble, you can get it at other bookstores around town like Writer's Block. You can uh, Costco carries it, and I do book signings at Costco um, once a month uh, during the first week or so of the month all day long. Um, and I also have a website called MikeGordonAuthor.com. You can buy it there. Uh, it's selling really well. Yeah, it's a great uh, book. I mean, you're I, working on a second book, right? I am. I'm working on a sequel. There's, you know, when you write a memoir, you have to leave so much out. You, you have to cut, 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 mm-hmm. cut in order to keep it a tight story. And so I have all of these stories, so many more about the kinds of stuff that you're interested in, um, the history of Anchorage and all that back in the day, that I didn't have room for in the book that um, – I'm planning on putting it in the next one. And then, on the back burner, there's a fictional book um, that I hope to write. I have time. That should be real. That should um, be great. And that's for the stuff that I not only didn't uh, have room for in the original book, but which I couldn't put in the original book. Yeah, maybe book. you didn't. So when you if write... I, I can write about it if I fictionalize it. When you were writing the book, uh, and I actually ran into uh, a few weeks ago, and it was at... Um, Chris Birch's memorial service. Mm. Uh, I ran into Norm Rokeberg and I said, "Oh yeah, I said, Norm, I said I'm reading Mike Gordon's book, and you know, you're in there." And he goes, "Yeah, I know. I, he talked. He talked to me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, how many people did you put in there? Or not? I mean, some of them are dead, but I mean, did you have anybody who said, "Don't fucking put my name in there," or "Don't put that story in there," or did you ask people, or did you kind of just play? It? Was it on your discretion? Well. Um, because Norm wasn't mad, but I, he wasn't mad, but I mean, I, he could tell. I was like, yeah, yeah. I was, heard you guys were in Hawaii partying. Uh, yeah. you, know? <laughs> you talked about my sex life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's, he wasn't mad, no. It's kind of funny. But I, I gave my wife, my first wife and my third wife, editing rights, and there were things that they didn't want in there that I, really? took, that Cause, I took out. Cause you, or you're that pretty, I changed because of that. Because you're pretty... Uh, 
I mean, you don't seem to hold back a lot. You talk about the vasectomy no, the, reversal. You talk about the having the baby. I mean, the, but, yeah, I know. But there were things that they didn't like. Maybe they didn't like the way I said it, or maybe they didn't want to put it in there. And whatever it was that they didn't like, I took it out. Now, wife number two, I didn't ask her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you seem to really kind of go go for no holds barred. She, on that she one. is the one who lied to me about the baby. Right. The where you said you had the they contact you and said I'm your you're my dad. Yeah, uh, we well, talked about that. In the, on the that's last, another story. In the last that's in the book. Uh, yeah, I did get contacted by that child. We, we talked about that in the last we, one. That was a, it's a crazy story. Well, Mike, uh, you got a fascinating story, and I, I've been here since '04, and I've done some some stuff, and you know, a lot of poker and gambling, and early on, and drugs and coots and all my. But I feel like what I've done in 15 years here doesn't even pale in comparison to your your stories and your. Um, just fascinating book, and I I want to I want to encourage folks to read it, and I want to do more of these, and hope you read. I'm looking forward to reading the second one because I it's one of those ones you can't put down. It's very easy to read, and it's very fun to read. Thank you. So we'll uh, do this again. Keep in touch, and I uh, I know it, listeners love it. So we'll uh, we'll do another one. All right, first All right. part of next month. Yep. All right, folks, uh, stay tuned for more podcasts in the future. And if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast. Um, let me know. Landline.